0: Reply guys.
1: Just listen to Reply Guys.
2: Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. Kate, good to see you again. Good
1: to see you again. Yesterday, we saw each other at the Bernie rally. We did not go together, but we we ran into each other in line. And I was was hoping I would see you there so that we could do a reply guys, (laughs) reply guys, uh, Bernie rally pick. Which we
2: did. Yes. Thank God. Thank God there were some reply guys at the Bernie rally. at the Bernie rally. No, it was really good. I felt... I feel badly because you had to leave early.
1: Uh, Yeah, I had to go to work because of capitalism.
2: But (sighs) once again, yes, trying to destroy socialism. Uh, Yeah, no, it was it was really good. Uh, If I if I had to give a note, uh, Michael Moore's speech could have used a copy editor. Uh, Just went on a little too long.
1: Oh, my God. Yes.
2: He really lost the (laughs) thread.
1: You know, you you can't um, you can't uh, doubt his commitment. Um, so yeah, that was pretty cool.
2: Everyone else was great. I was really, uh, who else spoke, uh, Nina Turner, um, the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico. Yes. Um, and also Tiffany Caban, uh, who ran for district attorney in Queens. Which oh, what, where, did t-
1: what did Tiffany Caban say?
2: Um, basically she, so I think we've talked about her on the on the podcast before. She ran uh in Queens for district attorney. She's a uh a queer woman and a Latinx woman and she yeah, she ran on like a very progressive DSA backed um a criminal justice reform platform basically of like decriminalizing sex work and um kind of you know trying to dismantle the carceral state from the da level very much like a larry krasner type um who's the the da in philadelphia um and yeah she talked about how kind of what the movement that that bernie sanders created meant her but she really talked a lot about aoc she mostly talked about aoc and how inspired she was by her and it this this goes to something that we've talked about before is that how important it was for her to see someone who looked like her um, running for office and winning. Um, so yeah, and then so she is the one who introduced AOC, who then spoke uh, for a long time, very effective. I was I I'd never spe- seen her speak live. She's uh, she was great, and then Bernie spoke for about I think probably about like forty five minutes or an hour.
1: Oh man. It was pretty good. I said, "Oh man," because I'm I'm so crushed that I went to the Bernie rally and I had to miss Bernie. I know because of it work. sucks.
2: But yeah, um, but yeah, there was like twenty six thousand people there. It was really cool. It was great. It was a great time. Great time to be with friends uh, ch- and chant about do a lot of socialist chants, yeah, chanting w- about unions. It definitely yeah. seems like
1: Bernie is making uh, I don't know a renewed effort to really win like it feels like post heart attack he is
2: completely like his arteries are clear yeah and so is he yeah (laughs) and he's ready to go yeah he he seems like he's
1: yeah he seems like he was kind of
2: uh recharged from his stay in the hospital i mean yeah i would think so i think he's probably he probably feels much better now that his arteries are clear
1: yeah i mean also did you see that video that he released about Medicare for all. I think it was a couple of weeks ago at this point, but he released this campaign video which like honestly, I'm not going to lie, it did make me cry. Um not like fully sob cry, but I did cry a little bit and it was about how if you have one life to live, you might as well spend it fighting for Medicare for all and I was like I was kind of wrecked from yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, it was beautiful. I didn't see that. Oh, I got it. you got to send it to me. Yeah, and will um we'll put it in the show notes, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, especially this week with the endorsements like it it seems like bernie is like fully like no like i am fucking in this and Mm -hmm. i'm in it to win it Mm -hmm. and i'm excited i've seen a lot of people kind of come back from considering other candidates and yeah come come home (laughs) start start again it's like you know what i i was a bernie bro and uh i thought i thought about maybe i could be some other kind of bro but no i'm back in it i'm back in it um we love to see it yeah Um, i don't know i mean it was really beautiful i guess this kind of leads into talking about the debates because that was like another big thing um this week, you know, uh Bernie didn't get to talk too much at the debates, but he finished the night off by uh receiving endorsements from Ilhan Omar, AOC and Rashida Tlaib which
2: was the news of the night. Yeah, so pretty yeah. Pretty good. Um pretty good night. I so <laughs> I was asked to do to do a live stream of the debates. Um with another comedian scott dooley who's uh australian and the the production company is also australian (laughs) i don't know basically the producer kept just like you know brought us to his his lovely apartment and just kept giving us alcohol with his lovely wife sitting uh, off camera and we were just watching the debates making jokes the whole time but the debates I don't know if you guys know this, are three hours long. And uh, I started off totally sober and I ended um, just absolutely wrecked. Um, I really... I popped off a lot about, uh, about how much I hate Andrew Yang. <laughs> I can't stop because he's just such a clown. I really i really don't And it's like and amy klobuchar i would just talk over her anytime she started talking that was another thing that that kate and i were talking about before this was how much positive press coverage uh amy klobuchar and p Buttigieg got uh like the centrist strike back uh and like saying that they had a a positive debate performance. I was drunk and I don't think that I could have spun their debate performance as positive. They were just angry.
1: I don't know if this is sexist or not. You can call me out if it is, but... Uh, I think that part of the I mean, I, I, Amy Klobuchar really bothers me for mostly substantive reasons. But she also does this thing that my mom does, which is she sounds like she's constantly on the verge of tears, which feels <laughs> like it feels like a very mom manipulative tactic. <laughs> and I, I don't think that I feel that way because she's a woman. I think I I think it, it is that specific behavior that I don't like.
2: Uh, yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. She really reminds me and, you know again, we can't act like, like, of course I am, you know, I'm, she sexist. Just, I'm i know. Very, I'm very yeah. sexist. <laughs> she reminds me of my high school principal who was just a fucking sourpuss and refused to learn how to pronounce any of our names. There's only like 200 of us in each class. She couldn't, she wouldn't do it before graduation. She butchered all of our names on graduation day. And I just think that it's, you know the first name in the alphabet when she had to call diplomas was uh, this this girl in my class who was Greek, uh, Chris uh, Katrina Athanasiadis, and boy did she just not pronounce that at all. <laughs> also, oh, that was another thing that you missed was that Bernie. <laughs> by the end of this, we're going to get Bernie to pronounce AOC's name correctly because he called her Andrea. <laughs> Did he really? And he also said uh, he he pronounced her name correctly a few times, but then sometimes there were a few times where he didn't. He'd called her Andrea, and then he said Andrea o- uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and I was like, "This is very much something my dad would do." <laughs> <laughs> so he's gonna do it, but it was no, it was really fun. Um, yeah, I had. Uh, I had a lot of, a lot of fun but the debates were a mess um
1: It was so shitty. Oh my god. I mean Yeah. I yeah, I, just, I hate- really went in on Warren. Definitely really went in on Warren. It feels like everyone was kind of like attacking her because she is the She's doing because she's doing better in the polls right now. At least I mean Joe Biden is still winning the polls,
2: but Yeah, but but he's so he's the only one who's really seen his numbers be on a downturn I think like pretty substantively yeah you know everyone else uh has been gaining even if the gains have only been marginal like he's really just been the only one who's consistently with each performance um with each debate performance and each kind of blunder in in his big events has been losing support I think people and also I think the impeachment stuff has really like we don't want there are a lot of even centrist Democrats who do not want another scandal-ridden candidate. Yeah, and the stuff with him and Hunter Biden, even if it's totally like fallacious, it's like we don't want to. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of Democrats who don't want to step near that with a ten foot pole.
1: Yeah, I mean, even if like, even if all that went on in the Hunter Biden stuff is that you know he served on that board, I mean, it's like. I still think that that does give Trump an opening to like, you know, kind of bring back the the swamp rhetoric. And the thing is is it's like, you know, even if Trump is totally like in the swamp and everyone knows that, it definitely like kind of it 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 leaves people with this feeling of like, uh, these people are all corrupt. Well, why should I vote? It doesn't really matter. You know, mm-hmm. Pete Buttigieg, judge, uh, man, I gotta say, I do really hate him. It is, uh, no secret. Um, <laughs> he is giving away tickets now to see Hamilton with his husband, which is like, it's like a parody. I think they tried to give away tickets to Hamilton in 2016, I mean, I am a Hamilton fan.
2: I don't really. I've understand. I've never seen it. I gotta I'm, see. It. I've never
1: seen it. It's like five hundred dollars, but I've listened to all the music. But I, I, don't really understand like the level of vitriol towards Hamilton uh, on the leftist podcast circuit. It's never. I'm a person that likes musicals. I've loved musicals for a long time. I think Hamilton is a pretty good musical. Oh my god, I'm gonna. I am going to be canceled for saying <laughs> this. I don't know. What's your favorite musical? Favorite musical of all time. Oh man, probably Les Mis. I mean, okay, yeah, that's I'm fair. I'm a
2: solid Eponine. I'm
1: just very. <laughs> yeah.
2: I think mine is. I think mine is actually West Side Story. I love. Oh, it Oh, it is
1: good. Yeah, I mean Joe Joe Biden. That's probably his favorite Cause, musical as well. Because there's singing. white white
2: people who've been painted orange. Yeah, singing
1: street <laughs> gangs. Um, yeah, but oh, sorry. Um, yeah uh i'm gonna turn off my ringer um but uh it was pretty
2: it was pretty bad i mean uh, but basically like amy klobuchar and, and pete Buttigieg got a lot of in the hate to say it mainstream media got a lot of positive press coverage as if they had good performances during the debate and i just gotta disagree you can't
1: stand it well and it was so weird too because like the first 20 minutes were like this complete rehash of the like do you want to take away people's private insurance that they have had like from every debate so far they just keep redoing that one there was no questions about climate change um
2: the last jay Inslee was going off yeah
1: the (laughs) last question was uh, about Ellen's friendship with George W. Bush and who was your most unexpected friend. And, um, like, three people said John McCain, and they asked Bernie, and I was like, who's Bernie going to say? And then Bernie also said John McCain, and I was like, wow, you know, you're really confident in your leftist base. <laughs> you're like,
2: yeah, no, I'm not going to lose these people. How powerful was John McCain? I just, what, like... What was it about? I don't get it. I don't know. I've I've read the. Uh, I, it's actually it's one of my favorite my favorite essays. Um, uh, David Foster Wallace wrote about covering him on the two thousand campaign trail. Um, and it's one of my all time favorite essays. So I kind of do get the weird like uh, fascination with John McCain as a character, but he just seems like. I was just like this guy? Everybody loves this
1: guy? <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, he's a dick. I mean he well, he's dead now. He was a dick.
2: Tulsi Gabbard um this, let's this talk leaves. about Tulsi yeah let's uh she was gonna boycott the debate and then she decided against
1: yeah she was I feel like when she was like I'm boycotting I'm I'm considering boycotting the debate it like reminds me of like every time I try not to like fuck some bushwick dude anymore and I'm like <laughs> I'm considering not fucking you uh, I just want to let you know that I'm thinking about ending this if you don't pull your shit together and treat me better I am out um and uh yeah, it was no surprise that she uh, ended up showing up uh, at the debate in the end. She had her white suit on again. Um, and then... Look, I'll say it. She's hot. I get it. No, we we all know... And Tulsi, like, she really is choosing, like, the hot lane, you I know? know? Um, but so she is our reply guy um, of the week. She... So what happened is... Hillary Clinton gave an interview and said that um, Jill Stein was a definitely a Russian asset and that Tulsi Gabbard was also. okay. uh,
2: she said one of the Democratic candidates is being groomed by the Russians, uh, who is a favorite of them. And um, the implication was that it was Tulsi Uh, basically that that Tulsi was being groomed by the Russians to run as a third party candidate. And oh, she didn't say Tulsi. She name did not specifically. No, she did not say Tulsi's name specifically. Oh, gotcha. And but everyone kind of like knew that it was. Who she was talking about It was It was I think it was implied And then Tulsi replied (laughs) Tulsi really popped off on Twitter She was popping off Uh, She said Great Thank you At Hillary Clinton You The queen of warmongers Embodiment of corruption And the personification Of the rot That has sickened The Democratic Party For so long I mean She's not totally wrong About that Sure Part Uh, Have finally come out From behind the curtain From the day I announced my candidacy Uh, there has been a concerted campaign to destroy my reputation. We wondered who was behind it and why now we know it was always you through your proxies and powerful. allies. (laughs) like she, this is a thread. I'm not going to read the whole thing. No, we
1: got to read the last, the last one in the thread, because this is, this is the most reply guy of it. Okay. Um, Through your proxies and powerful allies in the corporate and uh, the corporate media and war machine, afraid of the threat I pose. Whoa. It's now clear that this primary is between you and me. Don't cowardly hide behind your proxies. Join the race directly. Okay. Let, this is so much this is wild uh t- t- afraid of the threat i
2: pose she, okay babe, he's pulling you're pulling it, like, it pulling it one percent uh, yeah <laughs> this race is between you and me I'll join the race directly <laughs> did you see the guy at the burning rally who is outside with a big sign that he had clearly spent a lot of time on where he said that hillary was going to join the race and ruin everything for bernie again and that a vote for hillary is a vote against bernie did I you did, see him? i did see that yeah man, he had a lot of fine print written for a sign i was like this that's not a good sign. But um, yeah, Tulsi, I mean, this is when, basically when this happened, it absolutely blew up. And then Tulsi and Jill Stein were both trending and I was like, this is where I tap out. You <laughs> I, had to log off. I had to log off because I can't, uh, I mean, Tulsi's already, okay, here's the thing about Tulsi and Andrew Yang. Conservative media loves them both like really almost every debate says that one or the other of them had one like i did not know that can well you know you're not reading fox news like i am uh no it's uh candace owens just just actually came out and said that the democratic party is afraid of tulsi gabbard because she's so great um it, that is what like i mean when breitbart is like propping you up i don't i'm i'm a little suspicious of you also tulsi's such a mess on like So many issues.
1: She was being considered for a position in the Trump administration. I think at one point, like way back in 2017. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: Yep. I don't know. I, uh, she really stresses me out as a her. I don't know. I have been thinking about doing a video series where I just recite, um, Andrew Yang's platform as Elizabeth Holmes,
1: Oh my god, that would be amazing! Please do it. Um,
2: that would make it interesting. Um, yeah,
1: but the I read that Tulsi thread and I was like, this is somehow toxic masculinity. Uh, she, yeah, you I don't know, really, I I don't get how that is a thing, but she's she's got some toxic
2: masculinity, and then it's her because hu- she's she's a she's a vet,
1: yeah, and then her husband was defending her too. It was like, this is you know, don't come after my wife and. It was just like, I don't know, it all just felt so messy. It felt like messy bitch. It is. Messy bitch on, tw- not, not, Tulsi's not a messy bitch, but it was messy bitch who loves drama
2: behavior. I don't know. And then. Guys, Hillary is not running again. Let's just put
1: that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have like, I feel like every couple months, at least I get into some like leftist friend of mine is like, oh no, do you think Hillary is going to run again? i um, No. No. Absolutely not <laughs> Yeah, no, it's not I'm, I'm definitely not worried about Hillary Clinton running um, Yeah, I don't know Hillary has um, You know, I was never uh, a full Hillary hater I just don't I never really like had a a passion for hating Hillary whatsoever was kind of neutral on it. Maybe I shouldn't have been, I was less informed then than I am now. I do truly hate Joe Biden with my whole Mm -hmm. soul. So I I understand what it's like to hate a democratic candidate. Um, Yet, I have been very weirded out by her behavior of late. It feels like... Yeah, it feels like whenever she comes out and speaks in the media, it's always to say something really gross. Like she said (laughs) that um, a few weeks ago that the... People needed to move on from calling Joe oh Biden my creepy. God. What is it? It's is, this woman
2: just, and Joe Biden like totally threw her under the bus after the 2016 election. It's like, why are you addicted to defending men who treat you like garbage? I mean, definitely as a woman, an impulse I can, <laughs> I can appreciate, but girl have some self-respect. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think she and Chelsea are like on a book tour or some shit. That's why she's, uh, that is why she's popping up so much now but we can't talk i mean hillary could just go go back to the woods and at first live your it,
1: life at first i thought it was sexist when people would say that i'm like no she has the right to talk she ran for president But now I'm like, no, I I get it. Because whenever you come out of the woods, it's to kind of defend toxic masculinity. Also,
2: this is what... So Ronan Farrow is is currently on his book tour for Catch and Kill, which is about reporting the the Weinstein story. Yeah. And he said that the lack of cooperation from Hillary Clinton was like really challenging for for him because like it kind of proved to him that like power protects power. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, just a very, just, uh, it's just not good. Um,
1: yeah. Uh, Sally may this week, um, flew uh, over a hundred employees to Hawaii to celebrate their, uh, record sales over $5 billion in, profits and um the student loan debt crisis has reached 1.6 trillion dollars um to almost 400,000 borrowers um and this, you know a
2: thing worth celebrating Yeah
1: and then the the student loan crisis there's now 1.6 trillion dollars in student loan debt um yeah you know so
2: Ken uh, Kippelstein had a had a good tweet about that and he was like if you if you want to know why millennials and young people are so so angry this this is a good place to start. And honestly props to NBC News for making the headline like not burying the lead in the headline and framing it as like Sally Mae is flying all these uh all of these employees for a luxury vacation while the student loan crisis tops 1.6 trillion dollars. Um, someone I know who works at Democracy Now said that that was like a very kind of like Splinter News framing, which we love to see it. Using um, NBC will be the next Splinter News. Personally, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so we have decided to introduce a new little segment on Reply Guys, and that we're going to be doing um, a, a weekly recommendation segment so we're gonna find things and recommend them to you
2: julia do you want to start i would love to start i have two things okay um one is the most recent big thief album so good so good called two hands um been listening to it all the time just crying to it um and the second thing was actually an essay that i read in n plus one um, by gabriel winant i hope i am pronouncing that correctly he is a, a historian at the university of chicago a leftist historian um, and he wrote this piece for n plus one called the professional managerial chasm um, and basically it's it's actually it touches on a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about in terms of like the pmc and whose constituency um, in, in the race is, uh, is the PMC. And basically he says that we can't other the professional managerial class, which is, um, has been mostly attributed to Elizabeth Warren's constituency. Um, because he says, uh, the trouble of course would appear to be the glass house variety, meaning that like, a lot of people who even know the term PMC are themselves in that, like probably could be categorized as such. And so basically, you know, he says that, you know, everyone should read this for themselves. But I think the point is, is that we need to like reach out to these, to these people and like sell socialism to them. um, Because a lot of, you know, You know, you look at like if you go to any DSA meeting, there's like a ton of grad students and there's a lot of people who come from like upper middle class backgrounds. Absolutely. This is something that Terrence said on our Chillbillies episode is that historically um, a lot of like leftist revolutionary or leftist radicals come from, I think, as he put it, the intelligentsia class. Um, But his argument is that we should be kind of reaching out to these people and he said "Um, it presents a historical task to articulate to those getting their first taste of precarity, why their alignment with the existing order betrays their own ideals and to articulate it on their own terms rather than berate them for failing to have seen it already. And I think that's a very important point. Um, And yeah, I just really loved, I just, I just really loved loved the essay. I think it was uh I th- you know, the central argument is like that it's the Sanders base, it's the similarity to the Warren base, not the differences that is going to make it easier for Sanders to attract more people.
1: That makes sense. And did he I mean, I got to read the essay. I am really looking forward to it did he address the fact though that like uh, i don't know i mean can can the pmc see it as in their own interest to um embrace
2: socialism or well no that's but that's his argument that a lot of bernie sanders constituency is the pmc
1: i mean a certain degree a little bit but that's not most of it i mean like if you look at who's donating to him and stuff it's well but like
2: teachers i mean the argument is like it's it's like it's more than just just an income number but it's like you're not a member of the working class if you're not you know if you're going by the strictly like the marxist definition of it if you're you know you're not producing the goods of it's like your your labor is with your brain that makes you a member of the PMC, like.
1: Oh, I had. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's some debate about that, but okay. I mean, like, no. This is this is what I'm saying. It's like <laughs> I I feel like most people who are socialists would would consider teachers to be working class, you know, and. I, I've actually, yeah, and,
2: I've been in I've been in some debates about this. Really. Um, in in DSA, no less. Um, basically, there are ways in which the PMC and the working class naturally have overlapping interests and that is going to be what because neither of them are at the top neither of them are controlling the capital nobody's in the one percent right yes so Yeah. So basically, he says, but it is their similarity to the Sanders base, not their difference, that is evident from any critical distance. Both for Sanders to win and for the broader class formation process he represents to advance, the worst error his advocates can make is to not to deny their own social origins or cast Warren supporters and the PMC as the inevitable opponents of the working class. So, and he says that that's like giving up in advance, and that these are people who can be moved. Again, he's he's like a leftist. He's not, he's, he's arguing that like, we should be like reaching out to these people because clearly they're like, they're more similar to us than they are different.
1: I am really looking forward to reading this.
2: Yeah. So anyways, that was good. I love a good N plus one essay. Um, but yeah, those Kate, what are your faves of the week?
1: Okay. So my recommendation for the week is this show on Hill TV, believe it or not. Mm. It's a show called Rising, and it's hosted by this woman named Crystal Ball. She once ran uh, for the House of Representatives, and she did not win her race. Uh, but during that time, um, there were like a her name fo- is Crystal Ball. Her name's Crystal Ball with a K. That's a real name. Um, and uh, she she didn't win her race, um, and there was like a, a big controversy because um there were like sexy pictures of her from in her early 20s and i looked at i saw some of the pictures and they were like very tame it was not like naked or anything like that but just people hate women and also this was a (laughs) while ago um but uh crystal ball i think she used to work at msnbc and now she she was fired and now she has her own show and it is like Unabashedly leftist. Like, really? Yeah. And it's kind of crazy to see this like unabashedly leftist show that very much looks like cable news. And I feel like it's And it's the very, Hill, does it? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And it's it's very substantive. You know, they have a lot of different journalists on from um The Intercept, Democracy Now, really, really good guests. And um there's like you know, kind of these short explanatory segments. And I I feel like Crystal Ball uh, is just really good at articulating things in a way that feels accessible and also a way that feels like, okay, I could see putting this to my parents in this way. She kind of really took off because she was on Bill Maher maybe a month or so ago and she's like straight up owned him when he was talking about how the Democrats needed to run someone like Amy Klobuchar, like a centrist. And, um, she made the case for like why Sanders is actually the most electable. And I mean, she just crushed it. And so, um, that got a lot of kind of viral shares. And then I decided to check out her show and it's like, it's, it's really good. And it's all, it's, it's just a really good, good little show. And, I say little because it's like seven minute segments, you know, so it's shorter. But um, it's also just like it's a wild trip to like see this like really straight up leftist shit coming in a situation that looks like cable news. It's fun.
2: Well, I mean, I think that that's kind of the wave of the future. Yeah, I think that a, a big a big thing that the left has had to Uh, reckon with is that we don't have a fox news we don't have like we don't have anything equivalent like obviously it would look totally different than fox news but we don't have an equivalent um of like hardcore like partisan unabashed leftist messaging
1: no Except for reply guys. Right. So it's just us. Uh, there's a really important question that comes to mind. Comedians, uh, are we in the professional managerial <laughs> class
2: or are we working class? Oh my God. I would say working class. We don't have any health insurance. That's true. We get paid in drink tickets. Yeah. I mean, I'm, Yeah. Yeah, Barbara and John Ehrenreich kind of are the um the progenitors of the of the term professional managerial class and so they've been writing about it for for a long time. So the definition, you know, I, I, again, I I agree with you. I don't I don't immediately think of teachers as part of the PMC, but I think the way that it's explained by both them and in the essay it makes more sense and i also think that the framework of like marxist um working class like proletarian bourgeoisie is just like a little limiting <laughs> um yeah but- i mean this
1: is uh it's definitely a, a different time and place than um early 20th century russia it's you know? not exactly what we're dealing with right now.
2: <laughs> Unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I am very excited about this week's episode. We got like... who, boy. We got a heck of a guest. We got
2: a a big guest.
1: I am going to be talking to Brianna Joy Gray, who is the National Press Secretary for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Pretty and wild. Yeah. I, I kind of can't believe that she was willing to come on the show like she's she's a busy person she's and very busy. um i've really enjoyed her writing she's written for the intercept current affairs and uh she started working for the sanders campaign i think last year and um you know just a really really good follow on twitter and i talked to her about feminist case for bernie sanders and it was really interesting and illuminating interview we talked about the um recent endorsements from the squad um we talked about the rally it was it was so good to chat with her and i think that listeners of the show the reply guys reply guys if you will i think you really like this interview
2: i i also just want to qu- quickly before we go to that interview give a shout out to ben dalton Uh, for kind of making this happen um he is the uh the producer of the hear the burn podcast which i believe brianna hosts yes um so yeah he's the one who connected us with her and ben thank you so much thank you for listening and uh we hope we hope you like the show too (laughs) all
1: right enjoy the interview Hi Brianna, thank you so much for calling into our podcast today. We are so honored to be speaking
0: with you. Thank you so much. No, it's my pleasure. Are you kidding me? I am a lefty podcaster uh, myself at heart. I had a podcast for mm, a couple of years called uh, Someone's Wrong on the Internet that it breaks my heart every day that I cannot continue and I'm so glad that I have a chance to have a podcast again with the campaign. So you you guys are my people.
1: Oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for uh, doing our Lefty Feminist podcast. Um, Since this is a feminist podcast, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit today about feminism. Is that all right? Absolutely. Okay, awesome. Um, So... First of all, I just want to ask, do you consider yourself a feminist? Are you comfortable
0: with that word? Of course. I mean, I'm obviously aware of uh, the reasons why some people aren't, uh, most of which are kind of rooted in either kind of a... Um, I don't want to say just misinformed, but an inaccurate representation of what it means to be a feminist. To be a feminist means you believe that women and men should be treated equally in society. It's a no-brainer. And most people, when it's put to them that way, agree. Um, But, you know, there's some bad PR out there. I saw someone had a really interesting long thread about Dolly Parton, who has said that she doesn't identify as a feminist, and how they think it's a lot about class issues and the way the feminist movement, um, particularly earlier waves of the feminist movement, um, were basically owned by a, a more elite class of women, disproportionately white women, and that some folks who were more working class and black and brown didn't feel like they belonged. And so there's a lot of interesting lines that happened where people are defining themselves otherwise, not because they are anti-feminist per se, but because of some some bad PR and some genuinely bad choices that have been made by some people within the movement. Um, but yes, I am a feminist.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I I have really enjoyed your writing on the internet. And um, I, I've enjoyed a lot of the things that you've talked about um, in relation to I think feminism, sometimes you haven't always explicitly said feminism, but um, one thing I've really gotten out of your writing is that feminism needs to become more conscious of economic inequality. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been a great and really exciting week for the campaign with, you know, the senators amazing debate performance and with, these um, endorsements from members of the squad. And the response from some corners has been questioning why these women, why these women of color in particular, are interested in um, an older white man, right? And so the, the question of um, what it means to be pro-woman has become front and foremost again. Uh, and unfortunately, oftentimes, it's not a conversation that's centered around policies that are best for women, right? So what gets described as women's issues are issues that are discreetly, uniquely relevant to women as opposed to issues that women broadly care about, even if they overlap. those issues overlap with other demographic groups, right? So of course, issues like abortion and equal pay are absolutely crucial in our women's issues. But it's also true that issues like homelessness Um, low wages are disproportionately women's issues. It's disproportionately women who earn a minimum wage and who would be disproportionately benefited from a $15 minimum wage. It's disproportionately women who work in low-income professions, helping professions um, like teachers and social workers who would be benefited by, for example, Bernie Sanders' policy to create a minimum wage for teachers of $60,000 a year. So by not thinking more broadly about what women's interests are, there's a way in which we are enormously underserved. And that, it also you know it holds true for other demographic groups african americans latinos etc I was wondering if you could
1: speak to what you feel is the feminist case for supporting Bernie
0: Sanders over Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, if I, if I could broaden it away a little bit from Elizabeth Warren in particular, I think that the point of looking first to people's policies and their record is enormously important, right? So what we saw, a lot of us have a little bit of trauma from 2016, because the contrast um, when it came to policies and records was very stark in the primary at that point, where there was one candidate Uh, who picked a vice president who supported the Hyde Amendment, um, who had much more equivocation when she talked about abortion, even though she was herself a woman. And Bernie Sanders, despite having been so unequivocal on this issue um, for 30 or 40 years, someone who a year before Roe v. Wade was saying very starkly and without any hesitation that a woman's right to choose is her own and a conversation between her and a physician and nobody else, you know, it was very frustrating to be told that we should ignore the facts on the ground and vote for someone who had, you know, not had as um, confident a record, it seemed like merely because she was a woman. And this time around, Senator Sanders' record is similarly difficult to impeach. You know, most people who are in politics for a very long time see that as a liability, you know, and newcomers can have a certain amount of advantage because they don't have to explain away their record or talk about their evolution. Bernie Sanders is someone who, because I think he has a genuinely humanistic approach to the world and sees equality less so as kind of identitarian as, and in more as kind of an intrinsic broad value, He has never had to revise his belief based on evolving norms of how we should see groups as equal or not, right? So he's someone who's always been supportive of a woman's right to choose, someone who in fact, through Medicare for All, would end the Hyde Amendment, um, someone who would provide every woman um, free not just access to, but free health care through Medicare for All. Someone who is able to address um, cr- the crisis, like the maternal racial health disparities um, and the general maternal health gap between that we have versus other countries where our children and our mothers are dying at disproportionate rates by making sure that women have preventative care, that they're going to the doctor when they need to before pregnancy, that they're getting the prenatal care that many women don't have right now because they don't want to... Um, pay money for hospital visits that, that they don't see as necessary, that women have leave time and are able to recover from their, present, uh, from their pregnancies without worrying about losing their jobs. These are the kind of protections that are second nature, like first nature rather in other countries across the world, that despite the fact that we live in the wealthiest country in the history of the planet, we're still negotiating around. Um, and so it's really – And not an issue for me as a woman, a a no brainer for me as a woman when I look around and think who is looking out for my best interest as a black woman who is still burdened by um, uh, student debt knowing that black women are the people who are most burdened by student debt in this country, having a candidate that doesn't just say I'm going to cancel a a portion of the debt, that I'm only going to cancel up to $50,000 of debt, that I'm actually going to take this crisis on and treat it with the seriousness um, of the financial bailout. Um, That's someone who I know is looking at me holistically and not just as a narrow demographic slice that they're interested in for electoral reasons. Someone who really understands what it means to be intersectional beyond the buzzword that makes a lot of sense um one thing that
1: i've noticed on the internet and i'm sure you've noticed too because it probably is a a giant pain in the butt part of your job is this really persistent narrative that everyone who supports bernie sanders is a white bro and (laughs) i was wondering if you could speak a little bit to what like
0: what are the actual demographics of who supports bernie sanders Well, people are losing their minds this time around because the actual demographics show that we have the least white, most female, most working class, as um, indicated by not having um, graduated from college, coalition of anybody in this race. Right. So not only do we have a leadership team here at the campaign that's 70 percent women, um, overwhelmingly diverse, uh, people like Nina Turner, uh, senior advisors, Winnie Wong, Chuck Rocha, uh, myself, women leading the organizing team, etc. But the people who actually are supporting this campaign are disproportionately female and disproportionately black and brown. And you also see that when you look at who is giving to this campaign. So, the number one profession of people who have donated to this campaign is teacher. The number one employer of people who have given to this campaign. Is Walmart. It's kind of mind-boggling that folks would persist with this, but we, you know, we see who it is who is characterizing the campaign this way, right? Um, And it tends to be people who don't necessarily share the class or economic interests of the people who are really propelling this um, revolution. So the proof is in the pudding, and I think we're, you know, as people continue to see who's participating in this campaign, as we continue to have events like the ones we're the one we're having in Queens this weekend, where. AOC is going to be joining Senator Sanders uh, in New York, it will be more and more difficult for that narrative to be uh, continued.
1: Do you think that the endorsements from AOC and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib will actually do anything to quell this Bernie bro narrative? Or do you think the mainstream media will just keep going with it?
0: I mean, look, perhaps I'm tragically optimistic, but I hope so, right? Like already seeing that there's a a little flurry of articles in the last couple of days where people are wrestling with the cognitive dissonance of these women supporting Sanders. It's forcing people, even if they come to the wrong conclusion about why they're doing it, it's at least forcing them to reckon with the reality that so many people in this coalition are in fact uh, not the bro stereotype and in fact never, never have been.
1: Has there been an increase in support for Bernie among women and people of color since 2016? It feels like that to me, but I don't know if that's a real phenomenon or just something that I'm perceiving.
0: You know, I'm not sure. I wasn't involved with the campaign in 2016, and so I I don't know specifically what the demographic breakdowns were, but I know that I was frustrated enough with that narrative at the time that this, this narrative is what in fact propelled me to start writing, to start A podcast. Um, I started my podcast with a friend of mine who is also a person of color, a, a Korean American gay man who was also excluded from the stereotype of who supported Senator Sanders. And we started it largely to push back against that media narrative. And then I started writing specifically about how identity had been weaponized in the race to derail the agenda that was best Um, designed to meet the needs of the most marginalized groups, including black and brown people in this country, Bernie Sanders. So, you know, my first pieces as a writer were about the mythology of Bernie having a black problem. They were about the weaponization of identity politics. They were how, um, you know, identity is a lens, but not this deterministic factor when it comes to dictating how people Vote Or what their political views should be or what their political priorities should be. And it has become a theme of mine when I'm thinking about what to talk about on the podcast um, and had a message around this campaign. And in our most recent episode, um, you know, we uh, that we did on the last day of Hispanic Heritage Month. You know, we, we talked about the fact that, you know, Latinx issues are so much more broad than they're often treated by the media. That immigration is kind of held up as the be all, end all, the start and the end of what is interest to, you know, Hispanics who are voting in this country. When the reality is, many more Latinos are impacted by um, health care, for instance, than they are by immigration, just on a new, as a numerical. Um, basis, right? Not that one is more important than the other, but that for healthcare to be excluded from the conversation when La- Latinos are the most underinsured group in this country um, is quite the oversight. And if you're wondering how to reach out to relevant demographic groups, how to have a broad based coalition, how to get members of communities who have also been interested in Republicans and voting for Trump to realize that the Democratic Party and more specifically, the message of Bernie Sanders is what they um, should be listening to. You can't just treat them like a one trick pony. And you can't just turn to these groups during election seasons and talk about what seems to be the hot button newsworthy issue. People are broad. They have Diverse interests. Uh, And you have to treat communities not just like they're represented by their um, kind of most, you know, high profile or sexiest issue. Kitchen table issues are important to folks across the board.
1: One thing that I've been feeling is in the past couple of years, it seems like more and more people have become conscious of the connection between economic inequality and other forms of inequality. And it feels like it it feels like that connection is, is somehow more explicit in Bernie Sanders campaign this time. And I don't know if that's just like the lens that I'm looking through at this point or what I've learned in the past couple of years, or if there's any kind of like conscious change in messaging that Bernie Sanders has done this time around.
0: Hmm. I do think that there is, it's been a journey, right? I think that after 2016, there were a slew of articles that seemed to um, deny the economic, um, the, the impact of any kind of economics in the outcome of the 2016 race or people's perception of what candidate was speaking more to their quote unquote material needs, right? And we all know that Donald Trump is a liar and ran on a lot of false promises. Wait, I are you a... serious? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just totally joking. <laughs> yeah. Look, you got to do the caveat. You have to do the caveats because people will, you know, there there's sometimes a resistance to acknowledging why he won, the kind of mo- multiple reasons why he won, because doing so is perceived as downplaying the, ugliness and the relevance of his racist rhetoric, right? But it is true that he ran a racist, faux-populist nativist campaign, and also true that he spoke to Falsely, right, dishonestly, but spoke to a lot of um, economic issues that people also do care about, right? He said things like, "We don't want people dying in the street," that healthcare premiums are too high, um, that a bunch of tra- you know trade agreements uh, really underserve the American worker, and too many jobs have been sent overseas, and nobody's looking out for the interest of the American worker. A lot of things that he hasn't done anything to change, and in fact has done a lot to make a lot worse, but in fact were true diagnoses of the problem. So following 2016, there was this narrative that said, you know, anybody who would acknowledge those issues is downplaying race. And therefore, you know, class economics played no role in this. Um, and I think that over the course of the last three years, thank goodness, um, people have been a little bit more open to acknowledging the role that class plays alongside race Um, to in, all, in the myriad kind of issues that persist in our society, right? So that you cannot truly be intersectional if you're not considering how race and class play together. And I, I can think of no better illustration of this than this picture that was going around the internet a while back of one, like a public bench that had those bars up on it so that homeless people can't lie down and sleep on it. But the bench had been painted with rainbow flag LGBTQ colors. <laughs> right yeah. so like there's this there's this kind of symbolic performative um liberalism that has you know really taken over in some camps that say oh great we're all inclusive we're going to paint this bench to be inclusive while ignoring the reality that so many, like a disproportionate number of people who are homeless are homeless, are members of the LGBT community, that trans people in particular have some of the highest homeless rates of anybody in this country. And you can't say that you care about LGBT rights. You can't say that you're supportive of trans rights. If you are only interested in kind of a superficial inclusion and you're not interested in their economic rights, if you're also not interested in their ability to get health care, if you're not interested in members of the community's ability to access gender affirmation surgery or PrEP medications or HIV medications and things like that without paying enormously high premiums. And I think that finally, um, because of Bernie Sanders' persistent um, uh you know, lobbying on these these points, his, per, his persistent campaigning, even outside of campaign season, um, and his refusal to let these issues go, it's become more and more difficult for people to ignore this. And talking also in terms of a dignity framework, you know, making people make the case, you know, forcing people who would disagree with Bernie Sanders to make the case why they don't respect human dignity, why you should have to, um, why why people should be excluded from health care on the basis of simply being born poor, you know, whether. The fact that whether you are literally are able to survive or die in a very in a given scenario should depend on how much money your parents have. These are. Now questions that have been brought to the national for that people have to reckon with. And so it's not just Bernie being asked, how are you going to pay for it? It's more conservative politicians like Joe Biden having to answer for how can you sleep at night if 10 million people under your proposed plan are going to remain uninsured? And that's a conversation we absolutely weren't having before.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's you know, one thing that's really annoyed me is um he, I, like, I feel like even in the conversations that I have with people or even some of the people that I t- that tweeted me um, <laughs> online, like Bernie, he talks a lot about the same things over and over again. And that is what. I love about him and i think some people um especially people with a cynical agenda have used that to imply he doesn't care about other issues or um like lgbt rights or issues of racial justice even when if you look at his record on these issues it's better than anyone running um mm-hmm. and i get really frustrated with people who Say things like, like, you know, they can't support Bernie Sanders for woke reasons or whatever because it's like, <laughs> how, okay, yes, let's continue to deny like 87 million people health insurance uh, to be progressive. Okay, but <laughs> um, I was wondering, like, why why doesn't Bernie just kind of shift his messaging a little bit, like, to satisfy those people who are worried
0: about that? Well, Ken, I do think that that Bernie talks about these issues with a lot more fluency than he's given credit for. And I think that a lot of the folks who are kind of pushing that narrative, if you ask them the last time they actually listened to a Bernie Sanders interview, um, we all know that he doesn't get a lot of airtime just to speak extemporaneously or at any length in the mainstream media. I mean, the mainstream media as a whole doesn't really lend itself toward long-form interviews. But... You know, I don't know that it's as much an issue with his rhetoric as um, kind of some bad faith arguments. And I'd also I'd also point out that <sighs> there is a bit of a gap um, when it comes to the various audiences that are out there and how they respond to rhetoric. So, look, I am a overly educated um, coastal elite myself. So I feel like I'm well qualified to critique my own people on this on this level. The reality is that the lingo that I feel comfortable with, the lingo that most people who are on the news and the media, writing articles, talking about these issues that we're comfortable using that we all learned in our, you know, sociology classes um, at liberal bastions, isn't necessarily the language that resonates or is accessible to people who have different life experiences and who in fact have firsthand experience of the things that we're kind of talking about in the abstract. So I'm not entirely sure that saying, hey, intersectionality is important on a debate stage, even though that is true and it is something that I would say and I would agree with, is as compelling to most Americans, as saying something like, it is, you know, it, it is, it, there is a relationship between the high employment rate, uh, high unemployment rate in the black community and racial prejudice. And here is a policy that is aimed directly at creating full employment so that we can do an in run around this idea of, um, Uh, discrimination, right? Here, I'm going to address this issue by saying we're going to end at-will employment so that employers can no longer fire you without cause, right? Which is is a way that a lot of people are able to fire folks for discriminatory reasons. And a lot of states, you don't have to provide proof cause, right? So people who have lived in at-will states, who have experienced unjust firings, hear that, hear about a jobs guarantee, hear about a $15 minimum wage, and they experience that messaging as intersectional more so than someone saying a word like intersectional at them, um, who might not have the policy to back up, back it up, or the policies that are actually going to manifestly change their material conditions. So the jury is out. We have yet to see, you know, what kind of messaging strategy is more strategic. But when you look at the the, the kinds of supporters that this campaign has attracted using Bernie's messaging and the kind of campaign. The kind of supporter that um, you know, so when like Elizabeth Warren's campaign has attracted, for instance, you know, her supporters are much more upwardly mobile. They tend to be college educated. They tend to be um, professionals, lawyers, and and people of that nature uh, who, yes, respond to that kind of messaging. But if we're going to build a coalition of the ninety nine percent, the overwhelming majority of people in this this country are working class people, and I think that it's perfectly appropriate to speak in an accessible way that connects directly with real world lived issues. I don't know that I see that as a as a detriment or a failure. That
1: makes sense. That's a, yeah, that is a, a a great perspective on it and I am going to make those friends listen to this podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm going to win this debate, but you have to listen to my podcast. So I just would love to talk for a couple minutes about your job. It seems to me like you probably have one of the most stressful jobs <laughs> in the world. <laughs> what is it like on a daily basis? Um,
0: You know, I'm like one of the few people in the world who genuinely enjoys Twitter. <laughs> I and mean, it's largely because I, I find the left community that I'm in on Twitter to be very supportive. And while you see a lot of nonsense, you know, it's, I, I generally feel less gaslighted on Twitter than I do in the real world because I'm surrounded by peers who kind of share my values and are very quick to hop in and provide really intelligent commentary and, and backup, right? I think that. Yes, it's stressful to be positioned as an underdog in a political contest where the stakes are as high as they are, right? Not just because of Donald Trump, but because I genuinely and passionately believe that Bernie Sanders offers a genuinely unique opportunity, uh, a once-in-a-generational chance to not just reset the country to the status quo that we were in coming out of the Obama administration, but to achieve real equity, right? We live in a country and we have grown up in an environment where we presume racial and gender disparities. And the conversation typically is about how to close the gap, how to get a little more parity, how to get, you know, an equal number of black and brown folks on the board of Fortune 500 companies, how to get representation in politics, all of which are important goals, but none of which are kind of addressed at root causes. And now we have a candidate at play who not only espouses that as a value, but has such a record of pursuing that as a value for his entire career that I have more confidence than I've ever had in a politician about his willingness to do anything that it takes, including sacrificing his own kind of political standing to work for the American people when he's in office.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Um, what is it like working for Bernie?
0: <laughs> I mean it's uh, it's a it's a dream come true. Look, I'm not someone who was who set out to have a career in politics, and I would not have left. You know, I was I was a lawyer for seven years. I was a very unhappy lawyer. I I hated it. <laughs> you know, it didn't accord with my values or my skill set. And when I started writing and was able to leave for a career in journalism last year, that was the best thing that has ever happened to me professionally. And it was very difficult for me to make the decision to leave the intercept um, partly because it was just such a great job and I love writing and being you know being paid basically to have an opinion as an opinion as someone who was always like an opinionated youngster and my mother thinks it's hilarious and I think it's like the boon of all time but like i part of my you know i It was a hard choice because also I thought, well, it's nice to be able to be completely free to state my political opinions and not kind of be within, you know, the campaign structure where I can't, you know, jump ahead of the rollouts and the, you know, the pacing of the campaign. But I chose to ultimately do it because of how much I believe in Senator Sanders and how much it's an environment here on the campaign where people here overwhelmingly are here because they support the issues. There are people who would be working for free to advance the cause of Bernie, regardless of whether or not they were getting paid. There are people here who are, are were active in their DSA chapters. There's more like DSA swag around the office than there is official <laughs> Bernie swag around the office, and it's amazing to work in a workplace where everyone shares core values that, largely, unfortunately, are just now kind of making becoming mainstream. It's it's a lot of, it's an overwhelming burden sometimes. It's, it's a responsibility rather is how I would put it. When you believe in what you're doing so much, um, it makes it so that you don't really turn it off. You know, I'm on, if I leave, if I'm not in the office, I am checking my Twitter feed, much to my boyfriend's chagrin. Am, <laughs> I'm having these conversations over brunch um, often, to my boyfriend's chagrin as well, because not all of our (laughs) peers in our social circles share progressive values, and you end up duking it out all over the place. But, you know, it's also a good training ground, um, and it's good practice to, you know, hone the arguments that I'm ultimately going to be having to make um, publicly in the media over the course of the next few months.
1: Do you have time for one more super quick question? Yeah, of course. Okay, so this podcast is called Reply Guys. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mostly we talk about feminism and socialism, but we also talk about the experience of being a woman on the internet. And I have to say, for (laughs) as much as people talk about Bernie bros, I have never seen anybody uh, have more like crappy things directed towards (laughs) them online than you. Um, and to me, and you know, this is maybe a question just, uh, for me personally, how do you deal with like all the crappy stuff directed at you online and still like
0: enjoy Twitter and get
1: your message (laughs) out there?
0: I mean, look, like I said, like mostly because I follow so many Great people, uh, I do feel like there's a community where most of the time I don't have to, I don't have to be the one that responds to something silly that said. Oh, gotcha. You got backup. Yeah, yeah, I got, I got, I got my own reply, reply crew. I guess my, re- <laughs> my reply bros at my back. You know, also, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I have certain standards for myself. Like, okay if the person has you know under this many followers brush it off if we see a repeat offender who clearly is bad faith ignore them um i typically i don't really block occasionally i'll mute but there's probably only like 20 people i've muted in my whole life and mostly it's not because of the content of what they're saying it's because their logic and analytical skills are so bad that like the like leo like the logical leo in me who cares about like justice and logic and like the lawyer in me just gets so irritated <laughs> that it's logically inconsistent that I want to like ban it from my timeline. But yeah, it, I, I cannot say enough about how much I value my Twitter community. Um, like there was, I don't know if you saw, there was a video that somebody put together today that superimposed a bunch of people from the campaign's faces on that final scene in the Avengers movie. <laughs> oh my gosh, I haven't seen that one yet. <laughs> I mean, it's like the, like people, people are the best. Like and I, I just almost can't even see through all the awesomeness to the, the handful of terrible people. And even when things are really bad, like the minor like doxing by a certain very, very popular account last year, you know, the the people who come in my defense are so overwhelming um, and the ratios are so delicious <laughs> that honestly, it, it doesn't. Typically, it doesn't impact me. The stuff that gets at me is not so much the stuff that's directed at me, but the broader media narratives that um, you know are targeted at derailing the movement as a whole. That's what keeps me up at night. That's what keeps me fretting and thinking, "What are we going to do the next podcast about?" That we so that we can like debunk some of these narratives that are out there. Not so much the personal attacks. I'm not saying that I don't have my moments or that I'm completely immune, but it really is the 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 lefty reply rose crew that keeps me afloat reply guys for good and and (laughs) gals and
1: uh non-binary reply folks (laughs)
0: right um this has been such a pleasure thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us of course kate and thank you for all that you're doing and and all the independent lefty media folks out there that are pushing the message
2: yay thank you so much Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrienne Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, which is O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can also find our Reply Guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out.
0: As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.